Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of The Lighter Side of Serial Killers here on the Boom Bastic Media Network. I am your host, Keith Rovere. I'm an author and collector of true crime art and memorabilia. Tonight, we have part two of my interview with the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson. Uh, part one went into great detail um, of how he met uh, his first murder victim, Tanya Bennett, uh, where he met her from, from the bar, um, how he ended up back at his house, the murder, very graphic details of the murder itself, how he killed her, how he dumped the body, and um, it's kind of where we left it uh, at part one. I try to keep it to a half hour. Uh, I don't like to go too long. I know people are on busy schedules, and I don't want to drag things on. So we're going to do part two tonight. Um, the whole point of Keith doing this podcast was actually his idea. Um, he wanted to really get across the police's ineptitude um, of him confessing to the murder and the police not believing him. A little old lady um, tried to pin it on her abusive boyfriend. I mean, she's a victim too. Let's not, let's not overlook that site that she was, you know, all the physical abuse that she had over the year, over the years um, with, with from her boyfriend, uh, John Sosnowski. Uh, her, uh, Laverne Pavlinak, um, from what, 1987 to 1990, numerous times she went to the police uh, and lied to the police to try to get him arrested, said he was a bank robber, uh, he was this, he was that. Like, on record, um, the police know she was a liar. And we're going to read about that, or here, we're going to hear about that, but you can read about that if you've seen the documentaries, and which are numerous ones with Keith in there, even some movies. Um, but that's really the main reason Keith wanted to do this podcast with me. Um, so the lens the police um, would keep somebody in prison, knowing the truth, or at least trying blind to the truth to save their own skin that they made a mistake. I mean, not just one case. I mean, how many cases can you think of that the police made a mistake? Oh, uh, DNA evidence finally let the person go. Like drastic things to get somebody out of jail um, because the prosecutor um, refused to admit they were wrong. He or she was wrong. Um, we don't have to get into planting evidence. It's not necessarily planting evidence in this case, but how Laverne got some specific information is very sketchy, which you're going to hear from a little bit. So, without further ado, we were just in the middle of hearing Keith talking about um, the reason why um, he came forward, because he could have got away with it. Now, remember, Keith was already arrested. Um, They were in the process of proving that he was the happy face killer. Uh, So they had him behind bars, and he was just explaining, well, my question to him was, um, did you do it for your own notoriety? Hey, I want to take credit for this. Did you do it out of the kindness of your heart? And Keith was explaining um, his conversation with the lawyers. So let's pick up right where we left off and get back to the conversation with the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson. And then in June of, of 95, Detective Rick Buckner had compared the, the, the smiling face letter to a, a, a suicide note I sent to my brother Brad. And, and they, they compared that and they said, this, I'm, I'm, they're going to prove to me, everyone in the world, that I was the happy face killer. I realized at that point when I talked to my attorneys uh, in, in, in May of 95, we were had this talk about because uh, is before uh, Buckner the, the cop went forward with the press in June. We knew in May that, that the, that's what he was going to do, that they were going to try to prove this. So we went through all the cases, and and he asked me what I should do, and I said, well, we need to get those people out of prison because if we get those people out of prison, then all these other cases will fall in, in, in line. In other words, it'd be the best thing to do. It'd be the right thing to do. And uh, 
then all these cases would just, we'd never have a trial, we'd just settle out of court and that's the end of it. And uh, that's what we were trying to do. But then their intention, the, the prosecutor's intention was not that way. Mm-hmm. They wanted a trial. They all wanted trials. And I, I, I didn't want the, if I wanted the, 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 the popularity of being in the press, I would have had a trial. Every day I had a trial, there would be a news blitz and stuff going on. What I wanted was the cases to hurry and go away. Which the more I tried to make it go away, the more they thought that I was, I was, I was, I was kind of manipulating the legal system. But what I was doing was pushing the legal system to do what it's supposed to do. When you get arraigned in, in court, uh, they will not allow you to plead guilty because you're innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. So they're going to force you to go through a court of law to prove yourself guilty, even though you want to say you're guilty. And this is the problem I had. So I forced their hand by by telling the press that I was, in fact, this person that was guilty. And when I did that, then, of course, they had to, they had to settle on it. They had to settle with the deal on court. They had to make this go away because I'd actually done what the layman's law called doing the right thing. Because I did the right thing and admitted I did the crime, then... Like they, like they keep telling people in the public, if you, if you commit the crime, then, you know, they got to go easy on you. Well, imagine some prosecutor wanted to take me to court and said, I'm going to prove everything that Mr. Jesperson said to you six months ago is true. But even though he did the right thing, I want you to kill him anyway. And that wouldn't fly in court. They wouldn't know. There's no prosecutor in the country that would like to take that to trial, knowing full well that he'd have to persuade a jury to go against their belief of doing the right thing. Yeah, that's, that's where this all fell into place, is that it was the right thing to do. If I had waited for, if I had waited for what my lawyer wanted to do, the Bennett case would have been the last case settled. We'd still be doing that. Still would have been in prison. Now, one of the most fascinating parts about this case um, was from 1987 to 1990, uh, Laverne reported John numerous times on record um, that once he was a bank robber, um, or he did this and he did that, trying to get him to violate his probation to get him sent to jail. Now, we have to always and let the listener know that Laverne is a victim here also. Uh, might people might just think, oh, she's a lunatic, wanted to rat, not even a rat. You want to, you know, try to convict her her boyfriend, uh, abusive boyfriend, you know, for the murder. Um, but when you're physically, mentally abused, I mean, I don't know how many years specifically that went on for. I, I, you can understand, you know, why she wanted this guy out of her life. But the crazy thing is, I mean, John was a stone-cold drunk. I mean, he was a, a legit blackout drunk who would forget what he did the night before. Um, there's so many facts in this case. Um, like, for, John can't see. John can't see at night. John had no driver's license. Uh, so he couldn't have driven that many miles at night anywhere. Um, and let alone drag somebody's body in a ravine. His knees were shot. Um, the police overlooked all these facts, um, but especially since he passed the lie detector. He, he believed that he committed the murder. That's why he passed uh, the lie detector test. I mean, how could you take a body with frail knees, passed out drunk at night, certainly would have been drunk at nighttime, um, down to a gorge and all oh, with these frail knees and a total drunk? Um, I mean, what is your thoughts about all this craziness? ahead of ourselves here. The thing is, I think it is, is that, see, when 
she calls in, Levert calls in anonymously to say that John Sosnowski was the murderer, right? And so Detective John Ingram, Detective John Ingram, goes to his computer finds out he's on probation, right? So he contacts the county probation officer that handled John to find out who could this anonymous caller be. And of course, here we are, we're going back these three years of history. So this probation officer would open his file up to the police and tell them all this information you just said, that, that he was a drunk and there's no way in hell he could have done this and all this. And Laverne has a history. You know, she called in on a bank robbery one time on the Tigard, Oregon. And of course, he couldn't drive a car. He wasn't there at the bank driving a car out of there with a, you know, the armed robbery. He couldn't see past his nose. But just a three-year history of doing this, and they knew when they went to talk to her for the very first time that she was this liar of three years. They knew this, and yet they wanted to ignore it because they wanted to see how far she would go to put John away. I think it, I think it was a game to them. I think it was a game to the police to start with and the prosecutor. Let's just see how far she's willing to put this guy away for him. She's going to help us do this. And I think that's what they did. They just kept feeding her information only the police could know, only what the killer could possibly know. Keep feeding it to her and see if she'd feed it back, if she was stupid enough to feed it back to him. And she was. She was so caught up in the idea of getting rid of John out of her life that she would get the police to help her do it. She would go ahead and tell them what they wanted to hear just so that the guy would be gone from her life forever. The police were willing, to, the police and the prosecutor, you got to remember, the DA has to fill, has to make a case. So he has to know all this information as well. He's got to know everything. He's going to know exactly what the what the police were talking about because he has to build this case up to take a court. He's got to be able to tell a jury what happened. And so he's culpable too. Jim McIntyre was culpable to everything. He, he, he had to be aware of what the, what the uh, probation officer told him. You know, when you go to court, you know, the, the, the public defender is going to come in and he's going to cross-examine. Say, wait a minute, you know, you already knew that he was a liar. There's something they'd have to deal with. And what's amazing is that when she was caught in a contradiction or a lie, instead of diving deep into a wait, maybe this whole thing isn't true. Like they believe that John was the killer. Um, and even though everything she said um, turned out not to be true, they would, you know, they, she would say something, contradict the actual evidence. They would drive back to her house and they would just chalk it up to, oh, she's just a sweet little old lady. She maybe just, you know, misremembered something, or they even flat out said, at least in, you know, was it the LA Times article, I think it was, where um, she was just abused so bad by this guy and wanted him out of her life so badly that, yes, she did say some things that were lies, but just to make sure he went away to prison. Because in their mind, he was the killer, she was a victim. Um, and we'll get into, you know, how they kind of helped her along, quote unquote, remembering a few things. Um, but it's like they completely ignored the fact that this whole thing could be a lie, which she tried to do multiple times before documented in the past. Um, but chalked it up to, oh, just a sweet little old lady um, who really just wants this guy away for life because he really did the killing and all the years of abuse. She just wanted him to go away. So they kind of ignored 
all the actual lies that she said, chalked it up to, yes, he's still guilty, but um, we're going to give her a pass and maybe even feed her the correct information because she kept changing her story. Changing the story because, you know, Monroe County wasn't aware that it, it matters where the body was killed, not where it was found. And the first story, the first story that got John arrested was that Laverne had driven him from, and, and a, a dead Tanya from exit 286 of Wilsonville, mm-hmm. which was Washington County. Well, what, Detective Al Corson of the state police was the reason why they put, put John in Washington County, because he knew that the law meant that where the body was, was killed was, was key to where, instead of where the body was found. So mm-hmm. the jurisdiction fell on Washington County. They had to go back and change Washington County's jurisdiction into Multnomah County because those are the guys that were, were feeding Laverne all this bullshit. They're the ones that were feeding her, make, building this, you know, doing this frame up on John. They didn't want any other detectives or prosecutors to handle the case. This is a, this is a, a frame up. This is what it's all about. It wasn't about, it was about putting two people away for a murder that they felt would never get solved mm-hmm. anyway. It's a gamble. In other words, they're, they're gambling on lies, but they're also gambling on evidence. That's why the whole case, all the evidence in the case was presented in trial so that they couldn't have a, a, an appeal, a, a very good appeal. I mean, and she was caught planting evidence in the trunk of a car. I think it was a purse. You know, she planted a purse. Now, the, the mind-blowing thing is, I don't, with her mind, again, she's a victim here too, Laverne. Where she just put a random purse in the trunk of the car and was expecting the police to believe that it was hers. Obviously, empty of sure of any contents, of course. Um, and a, a, a random newspaper article about the case. And the amazing part was the cutout of Tanya's jeans. So obviously, she had to know somebody, whether it was a newspaper article or something, she had to know that those jeans that you obviously cut out she just put a random slice of uh cut out a random pair of jeans and and threw it in the trunk of the car figuring that uh oh they'll believe they'll believe that that's her jeans like i guess you didn't think they're actually going to try to to line them up the real pair of jeans i mean it's it's crazy the fact that it was the fact that the jeans had been cut this was the piece of evidence that was never brought out in a in a uh a newspaper article trying to look for information this is some this is a piece only evidence that the police knew about and I knew about mm-hmm. but I wasn't talking. And what so I... They fed her information only the police could know at the time. Now, what I read doing, obviously, his research on this was, we're thinking, how the heck did she know about uh, the purse? I don't, I don't know if anything was said about there was an article or not um, that she also placed in the trunk, but more specifically is the jeans. How did she specifically know where the jeans were cut out at, where the killer cuts the, the jeans off at? Um, so what I read was um, somebody showed her a copy of the search warrant, and that's how she actually knew um, what was missing, the specific what part of the jeans were missing was because she got a peek at the search warrant. I disagree. I think the LA Times story says she, she saw the search warrant. I think what they did yep. is they, they, they told her what they needed to find. Yeah, but I think what happened is I think actually that's an article written in conjunction with uh, District Attorney Jim McIntyre. Mm-hmm. He's trying to explain how 
the case developed around him and trying to clear the names of his police officers and so forth. I actually believe that, that Detective John Ingram coached Laverne and got her to, and, and told her what they needed. They maybe even planted it in her car herself and then called Detective Al Corson from the state police office to come over and witness the finding of that evidence in the trunk of her car, even though it was all both it's all crazy stuff anyway. It wasn't mm-hmm. even the real evidence. But it had to be it had to be there for probable cause. They needed to find that in the trunk so they could bring John in for questioning under probable cause. And that's why that was there. I still can't wrap my mind around the fact that they're on record, uh, the, police, the detectives, of saying, um, yeah, she lied about this. Yeah, she uh, maybe misremembered about this. But she's just a sweet little old lady. I mean, they literally said in the article that, uh, uh, I mean, look how clean her house is. Would she be the type of person to do this or do that? They gave her, you know, food or cookies or milk. Literally, I think that's exactly what it said. Um, but she's just a sweet little old lady. Ignore all the facts. You know, she's she's just a sweet little old lady. Okay, well, look at the last story you're told, right? She claims that the murder happened at the Vistown Monument where they're uh, having sex under, under the doorstep of the Vistown. You know, mm-hmm. And keep her in her house. And didn't they... Or, she said, or, or I forget what the evidence was, but something like um, wrapped her also in a shower curtain. And what happened with the shower curtain? Well, that was another story. See, that that was the story when she drove him out there yeah. was in the shower curtain. The shower curtain was, her last story didn't have a shower curtain. The last story that she told didn't include a shower curtain. So did they look for a shower curtain or didn't they? Good. If they found one missing, did they... How come it was missing now on the second, on the last story? The last story is that the murder happened now at this house in Multnomah County. But they go out there and they bring the tape recording back to Jim McIntyre, the DA. And he listens to it and he asks, well, okay, fine, I can use this. So what do they do? They go out to Washington County and they pick up John out of Washington County jail. They bring him to Multnomah County. Then... They have to go back out to pick up Laverne and arrest her. Mm-hmm. They left her in her house after she confessed to helping kill Tanya. Why did they leave her there? Well, because they needed a DA to sign off on the on the on the tape recording that he would use to convict her in trial. Only then did they go out and arrest her and bring her back to to Multnomah County. And it was said that while she, when she was dropped off at Multnomah County, that she hugged the detective telling him thank you. Well, it's got, it reminds me of another point where how did she get the geography right of the body? How did she know where the body was? Um, I mean, she pointed with the detectives in the car. She literally pointed to almost the exact spot. Um, and then, again, with the article and, and what I've read about it, she's quoted of saying, oh, that was in my, her exact quote. It was easy, Pavlonek said. Um, from news articles, I knew the spot was 1.5 miles from Vista House before Lutorel, and I pronounced that, Lutorel Falls. As I drew out there, she said, I just watched the odometer. She said even a baby could have found the location out on the gorge. Um, she said from news reports, from search warrant receipts, um, and she said it's, it's in a loop between switchbacks. Um, and then she said uh, she noticed the detective's, quote, unconscious body language. 
And then she said she saw two small orange markers placed by the police so they could pre precisely triangulate the spot. I mean, it couldn't have made it easier for her. And even she even said, I know it's 1.5 miles. I just watched the odometer. But, but just think about this. She'd be, she would have been sitting in the back seat of a cop car, not the front seat. Mm -hmm. She'd been sitting in the back seat of a cop car going down that road. Could she actually see the odometer? Probably not. I think that this is what I think happened. I think that Detective John Ingram picked her up, drove her down to where the ravine was, described exactly what Bennett had been wearing that night, gave her gave her all this information, brought her back to the police station, and then called Detective Al Corson to come over so we need to make the drive around. So they, Al Corson steps in the car and they go do this drive, and they get down to where the ravine is, and she says, this is it. You know, she points off into the ravine, and she also describes exactly what Bennett had been wearing that night. And she hadn't been within 25 miles of, of her at any given time that night. So, Al Corson, he believes that she's guilty only because he's never, he was never there to coach her. If, you, if you're really reading in an article, Laverne was calling Detective Angus, detectives every day telling about past events and so forth, trying to get him to arrest him. She believes he believes she had a captive audience that this guy these cops were actually believing her. John's problem was that he believed the cops were believing her, and so that's why he lied about uh, being in a, in a, on a ride with Chuck Riley, delivering the body out the out the door. Mm -hmm. And if you and the, the guy Chuck Riley, uh, there's a Chuck Riley that's a Washington County Sheriff. I think he was after that, so mm -hmm. he might be the same Chuck Riley. Now, is it true that I guess you were in jail at this point or in custody somewhere um, that you were trying so hard to tell people, "Listen, these people are innocent. I did it," but you were trying it so hard that a judge actually had to put a gag order. You know, <laughs> on you um, because you were trying to convince them so many times. I guess I don't, I don't know. You know, I guess obviously they didn't believe you. Uh, but is it true they really they, a, a judge or somebody actually tried to put a gag order on you, or did put a gag order on you? I had a gag order put on me because they wanted to keep me from talking to the press to secure a fair trial. But Monroe County couldn't do that because I wasn't charged with a crime. Mm. I was trying to prove I did the crime, and they could not put a gag order on me in Multnomah County because they didn't want to charge me with a crime, which they'd have to admit that I was guilty of the crime. They wanted me to go away. But I was, uh, Multnomah, uh, Vancouver, Clark County, they're the ones who put the gag order on me. Right. And they wanted me to preserve a trial, which on, on October 16th of 95, I pled guilty in the Winningham case, which removed the gag order. And I sent a press release over to Multnomah County at that time, and at that time they decided to work with me and prove I did the crime myself. And then it only took them about 15 minutes to get the, the statement from my ex-girlfriend, Roberta, to say that I confessed to a murder, which I never confessed to her. But, but they, they, they tried to work with me after that on the stipulation that I wouldn't go to the press with it. Now, at this point, obviously, they... Um at least they settled into the fact that, okay, this, this guy's legit, and you think you know, we, he was good for the case. 
Um, it said, I think September 29th, it was McIntyre with Peterson, um, went to the Clark County Jail. Uh, I think Phelan was already there. Um, at least from the article that I read that, you know, he, um, McIntyre said when he walked in, he's like, holy crap, you know, how, how tall this guy is. Um, he took the handcuffs off. He said, you reached out your hand to shake the prosecutor's hand. Uh, but McIntyre kind of recoiled his hand, as he said, made it, make it sound like very dramatic, you know, um, as far as, uh, the first initial meeting. Uh, but you remember that, that first meeting at all? Or what, what can you tell us about that? Well, you gotta understand, they didn't want me to be there want me to exist. They wanted me to go away. They wanted this Bennett case to be too dissolved. They didn't want to, they wanted, they didn't want to rehash it. They put two people in prison. They know they put two people in prison. And they were fearful that I had the goods to get them out. That's what they are fearing is that I had the goods. And so I had to get the press to watch over the goods before they found it so that they wouldn't destroy the evidence. Now, I was just going to ask you that, that uh, you only give them a little bit of the information. Uh, you withheld, you know, very detailed things like where the purse was and, and um, the other items you might throw out, but you purposely withheld it. Yeah, they were they were so caught up in the idea of going down there and finding it, getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I saw them you know, when I took another polygraph test and talked to them, and here they were all scratched up because they went into the blackberry bushes looking for the purse. You know, and that's before their four scouts went out for the first time to look. I mean, I know that's what they did. They were trying to destroy the evidence so that they did not, so I could not prove I did it. So they could keep those people in prison. It's, it's such an amazing story. Um, obviously, you know, you give me information and they found the items right away. Um, and that was that. I mean, it took a little, even took a little while for them to get out of prison. Um, but in all of this, obviously, you wanted to specifically talk about the Tanya Bennett case and how um, just insane you know, the detectives can be, uh, just to prove a case, um, even with the facts, um, really no facts, <laughs> no, no real, real evidence. Obviously, we know John um, passed a lie detector test, but because he was such a blackout drunk, he thought he did it. You know, that's really the only, I wouldn't even call that concrete evidence. I mean, lie detectors, most aren't even a uh, hold up in court or leaving loud in court in trials anyway. Um, but with all this, when all said and done, um, what do you want the people to take from this? Obviously, you wanted to come on to my podcast, and which I'm very appreciative for. Um, but in a few minutes we have left, um, what do you want people to really get out and remember uh, about this case? Well, I think the, the one thing that people should take away from this is that the prosecutors and the police are not always on your side on doing the right thing. They just There's some of them that will go out of their way to put people away that shouldn't be put away. You never, you cannot trust them 100%. Everyone has to be looked at under, under a spotlight. This is, this is, a, this case proves how bad it can get when, when you, when people are prosecuted. The Laverne was supposed to be the nut job that was discovered as a nut right from the start. When people, when, when the prosecutors put in the press reports and they wanted to, they wanted to discredit all the, all the nuts from coming forward and saying they did a crime, in her case, they used it against her. This is what, this is the problem. You can, you have prosecutors, you have police that are willing to bend the rules to solve a case that was probably not solvable. And that's 
probably the best thing you look at is that not everything is what it seems. Mm. When, you, when, you, when you're watching the newspapers and, and uh, the press is, is talking to the police and the prosecutors, they don't always have your best interest at heart. What you have to take away from this story is, well, there you have it, my conversation with Keith Jesperson regarding the Tanya Bennett murder uh, and all the craziness um, surrounding it with Laverne and John. And um, you know, when you have a serial killer trying to prove that he did something and the cops not believing them with such a lack of evidence, um, obviously that's the point that Keith wants to get across, as you heard him say. But if you're listening to this, you might have something a different take on it uh, or pull something different. Like what I personally think of most is Laverne. Um, I'm I'm obviously Tanya, the victim, Tanya and her family, but the the point from Laverne's point of view of she was in a a very abusive relationship for who knows how many years. Um, I know some people listen to my podcast. I know you have been into um, involved in an abusive relationship verbally, physically, maybe even sexually. And it's not always easy for a female to get out of that relationship, especially if they're dependent on them or living with them and they have no friends or family or nowhere to go and you're stuck there. You can put yourself in Laverne's shoes and you're damn right. I would have did the same thing. Planted evidence, do whatever he can to get uh, get that person out of her life and in the prison forever where he probably belongs. And I, I can relate to that too. I can understand. So anyway, I thank you guys for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, and until next time, see ya.